Hello, Marvelites. Welcome to a special bonus this week in Marvel. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M, and I am joined by... C.B. Sobolski, Editor-in-Chief. Yeah! And so this is our first This Week in Marvel Unlimited Reading Club for 2019. And it's the first of what we're going to do the whole year long. C.B., you and I are going to come back every month to celebrate Marvel's 80th anniversary. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. There's so much good stuff we have to talk about for eight decades worth of amazing Marvel product. And I uh, can't wait to come back and keep these Marvelites entertained. Yeah. And so every month we're, we're looking at a different decade. I don't know what's happening at the end of the year. My math doesn't work that way. We'll get there. We'll figure it out come... September, but for the next couple of months, we're going to pick a, a decade, pick a selection of books, yep. and go through it. Fortunately, to start us off in a very hectic January, we only have one title. We begin where it all began. That's right. Well, look, you're a natural. Uh, with Marvel Comics number one. Uh, and so going further, we'll let you guys know about what books we're picking, what we're doing, put on social media, talk about it in the regular episodes. Uh, and you can always follow along with hashtag TWIMURC. That's T-W-I-M-U-R-C. Send your thoughts and your questions. We have some that we're going to read a little bit later. But yeah, like you said, this is the beginning. Have you ever read this issue before? I had read it before, but uh, reading it over the weekend, it was quite an eye-opening experience because I forgot some of the ins and outs and you know the way that comics were made and stories were told back in that day. Was- yeah. I had read parts of it. I'd never read the whole thing previous to this. And uh, there was one, one piece I wanted to note because some versions of this book have October listed on the cover. Yep. Some versions have November. And mm-hmm. that is because it was a first printing, second printing thing. The first printing... I don't know if these numbers are fully accurate because nope. uh, they, they came from other sources, but I saw 80,000 copies of the first printing. Yeah. But it was so popular, they went back, and by the next month, they had 800,000 more copies made. Yeah. So, yeah, well, the way I, it, w- it was told to me was just along those lines. You know, Martin Goodman wanted to package this together, get into comics, and put together this collection of stories that we all now hold near and dear. And sent it to the printer. He went with a new printer. So the printing was absolutely horrendous. Oh, no. So that's why he thought, oh, I'm getting this comics. Not only am I getting in the comics business, which is a risk, it looks terrible. So he thought he was going to lose his shirt. He was ready to call it a day after this. But people snatched it up. And when he went back, as you said, 800,000 copies, 10 times the original print run. It's wild. But it was still, even still now, finding a, a great copy is rare. Yeah. Fortunately, we have Marvel Unlimited, where anyone could go read it right now. Uh, well, let's dive into it with the cover, which is by Frank R. Paul. Yep. Uh, and it features a guy shooting at the Human Torch, who's melting his way through a metal wall. Mm-hmm. For some stupid reason, I always imagined that the wall was a submarine wall, which doesn't make any sense. But in my head, I thought the Human Torch was coming in. And like reading it now, I'm like... That doesn't make sense. Was well, that also because the Submariner's in the book? So you figured maybe it was like an undersea thing? I guess so. Now like, I look at it in better context yep. and all that stuff. But Paul, uh, Frank R. Paul, not a name well-known to most Marvel comics No, and a fans. lot of the guys who drew this issue really aren't, aren't yeah, all that well-known now. We'll get into some of them. But Paul, very influential sci-fi and pulp magazine illustrator from what I saw. But I think this is the only thing he did for Marvel, period, which oh, really? is yeah. wild. Like he comes in. Does this cover, drops the mic, leaves, because it's so influential. We've yep. homaged it so many times over Unbelievable the years. amount of times, yeah. Yeah. So the first thing inside was a page of gag panels. Which was, when you go back and read it now, even back then when I think I read it the first time, made kind of no sense in the context of where we are yeah. in this day and age. But back then, must have been hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. Uh, it's done by Fred Schwab, who did a ton of humor features and cartoon strips 
for Marvel, for pretty much every publisher. That dude was yeah. very prolific, even if he's not one of those names we know very well as comic fans. The issue has six stories. First, Human Torch by Carl Burgos. Yep. And this is the android Human Torch, who we know is Jim Hammond. Yep. But here he doesn't have an identity. Nameless. He was referred to different things. The Fireman at one point. Yeah, it was so. fascinating to look at these old stories and how they were just like, all right, let's try this. And, you know, just the, the storytelling itself, the way that the panels really didn't work in the context of traditional storytelling we know and love today, how there were arrows, they were stacked in different ways. You had to almost guide the reader visually through the story because in some place it was really hard to make out which panel you had to read first and what came after. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the arrows. I didn't think about it the way you just put it in how what we do, what you guys do is so natural, like guiding someone's yep. eyes is part of the language of comic books. Mm -hmm. And here they were like, just tell them to read this way. Because sometimes they go down instead of over. Yeah. It was really, it was really interesting. And the amount of dialogue too. It was like they were trying to find that balance, especially when we get later in the issue, which we'll talk about. There were some panels that were just text. It was I know. like each panel was a caption. So yeah. but in this one, you know, it was a fascinating story, one that's been retold numerous times over the years that we still acknowledge the origin that started here. Yeah. You know? And part of the origin that stuck is Professor Horton yep. and like him being the creator. I found it interesting that the torch just bursts into flames when he touches air. Yep. They actually have some very inventive storytelling tricks for how they use Torch, but he's so innocent in this story because yeah. he's just born. Um, and then the, the, the villains were such caricatures, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it was funny. The, 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 you know, Marvel is the world outside your window, and they always, you know, tell stories of that our day and age. But in here, too, it's like, you know, very heavy on gangsters and racketeers, as they were called. <laughs> Racketeer <laughs> shows up so much. I was like, Racketeer's a real big yeah. thing. But here, the, the racketeer, who's the crime boss, also happens to be a scientific genius and has a lab in his basement. <laughs> Duh, CB, of course. But we, we, we get Torch, and he's. You know, he gets upset at burning things. He enjoys life. He just wants to experience stuff. Yeah. But he has no problem fighting back and really yeah. going to town. And the way Burgos draws him, especially in this one, because I read a bunch of stuff in the 40s over the last like week or so. Yeah. The way Burgos draws him in this issue is frightening. Like he draws him almost gleeful at times and like, which is great. But close your eyes and you imagine someone on fire who yeah. comes at you. And they're just like smiling and they're like, oh, hello, dog. And then you're just like, what is happening? Uh, it was real weird. It's true because, you know, you think about what this issue was. It was a time where there weren't many superhero comics. The word superhero wasn't applied to, to any of the stories in this book. And th then it was a lot more genre stories, as you know, as we move into the 40s and 50s. So this was almost horror more so than anything else. It was supposed to evoke that kind of, you know, play on the fears of people about artificial life and what might be out there. And, you know, scare the, 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 the real heroes of the day, the firemen and policemen who we, who we fought in the issue. Yeah. Really cool. I enjoyed it a lot. Second story features the angel. Yep. Vigilante, sort of folk hero, just wiping out crime. It's by Paul Gustafson. And it, which is interesting, too, about this. You know, you mentioned how this book was put together. Yep. Martin Goodman went and he was basically like, I want a comic book. And he goes to a, a group who puts together these stories. But all the stories are put together mostly by one person. Writing, art. All of it. So it's real neat how that's done. Paul Gustafson works on this one. And what's really neat here is we just jump into a world as if everybody knows who the angel is. Yep. Yep. Here which we is go. great. Yeah. And 
he's never really, you don't really even fully see him. And again, in that superhero way, the introduction that we would normally think of, you know, he slips into the back of a car and nobody's <laughs> noticed he's there and he jumps down from a building, again, fighting with these racketeers and crime bosses yeah. who were taking control of the city. Yeah. And again, a story where very word heavy, but the storytelling I found in this one is, you think find, is, is a little bit more clear. It was like almost like more direct panels and done in the grid style rather than having more horizontal elongated panels. Yeah. Angel here has no problems about killing. At all. <laughs> he, yeah, you mentioned him jumping in the back of the car. And he just chokes the guy. And so mm. I'm reading it. And I'm like, okay. So he just choked him out. He's like, oh, no. They say he's dead. Yep. As the Angel, merciless. Angel also appeared in a, a story from a couple years ago of ours, Marvel's Project. Yes. He mm -hmm. was part of that. He's shown up a couple times. It's a punchy story. I, I actually really enjoyed the lettering. But he, he did send a note to the police chief or the mayor at the beginning saying he was going to take these people out. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that they skipped out to, you know, I don't know if it was done for storytelling reasons or whatever, but in the middle, he had to kill the six crime bosses. In the middle, he just gets a note that says, boss number three is already <laughs> dead. So just move on to number Not four. Not worth showing yeah. you. It's so good. The third story is the big one, in my opinion. Yep. It features Namor, the Submariner. By Bill Everett, yep. and Bill Everett go on to co-create Daredevil mm -hmm. uh, and Zombie uh, with Stan Lee, the two of those. Uh, but Everett, the more and more I've read these comics of the 40s, like Everett is heads and tails like at the top of the game. You can just point. see in the art style alone in this. You know, It was really well handled. Yeah. This story lays out stuff that we just think about Namor today. Yep. It was so fleshed out. This character, him being the avenging son, he's fast, he's brash, he's intense. The strength of a thousand men. Yeah, mm -hmm. probably even more than that at this point. Like, one of the things that's interesting, over the years, it feels like Namor's just gotten stronger. No. Which is great. He's become one of my favorite characters over the years. We get the origin. His mom was a sea woman, not quite Atlantean. No, but uh, and that's an interesting thing, too, where she... Is back in Atlantis. She hates the surface world. She explains how she infiltrated the human race, married the man, but they never talked about the breakup or how she got pregnant or when Namor was born. That's kind of just nicely skipped over. <laughs> <laughs> PG, PG, PG. Yep. And, you know, this idea that he could have lived in either world and he does live in either world, but he fights for his undersea people. That's where he feels home carries through even today. We look at the Avengers comics and the Invaders comics that we're putting out right now and you get a lot a deep sense of who that is with Namor. Yeah, and I think in this uh, story, we always tell new pencils who are coming up, show, don't tell. Use your art to tell stories. Don't rely on the captions. And this was the one where I thought there was the least amount of lettering and Namor had the most action. He let the action speak for itself, especially in the lighthouse scene where Namor came to the surface world and began his attack. And, you know, there they really just let the stories and the sound effects, because this one had the sound effects drawn in more so than some of the other stories in, in Marvel Comics, number one, to really use the art to the best of their ability to tell the story. Yeah, uh, the art, gorgeous, you know, like... Everett's undersea people look so yep. weird and it's just so cool. It's just like, oh, well, this is what they look like. And that gives Namor, you know, he's got, of course, the eyebrows and the head shape. He's that bridge between the two worlds. It's so, so cool. The coloring is really neat. Like it's really undersea yeah. coloring. And you never know because what I found out was that this story wasn't originally created for this magazine. Yes. It was created for another one. It mm -hmm. was created for, I think it was called Motion Pictures Funnies Weekly or something that like that. That is correct. Motion Picture Funnies Weekly. Yeah. And it was a, an eight-page story that was supposed to go in there that was given away free at movie theaters, but they decided not to. And it was only an eight-page story. So when they put it in here, they had Bill Everett come back and draw four pages 
And I think that's where you can see a little bit of the coloring differentiation too, as we as you read through it. Yeah, look at this guy doing all your research yeah. ahead of time. I love it. I love it because there's a story that I read that was there are less than a dozen copies that were found of Motion Picture Funnies Weekly, which is oh wow wild like that it existed. It was black and white, and it was just sort of like, well, we could do comics. There's also Everett, and you see it if you read more '40s comics. Everett draws his title page, like he almost put more effort into that and establishing that first page of the story and it's gorgeous stuff it's really really cool it's also as we mentioned very brutal <laughs> the scene that sticks out in my head is namor crushing the divers yeah the skull yeah Oof. but even here too the backgrounds that bill ever put in too in the aquatic life and it was just you really brought together the the whole package you know that's why i think why he went on to such great success you could see the the, the level of detail and the attention he paid to the story yeah there's one panel that made me smile with a shark and it looks like it's half smiling <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's a smiling shark. Why not? Yeah. Uh, our fourth story is The Masked Raider, which is by Al Anders, who, as far as I could tell, I did some research. I have a couple of really great resources. All he did was masked Raider stories for us. And Raider, he's important in the sense that he's the first Western character for Marvel, even though he's not of the same level of like a two-gun kid or rawhide yep. kid or whomever. I'm not a big Western comics guy. Yeah, me, me either, to be honest with you. Yeah. I love um, Unforgiven, yeah. that movie, which is great. But, you know, the story, simple, fine, good Western. Uh, you got a good cowboy, evil rich dude, henchman. Mm -hmm. uh, a I, white stallion upon which to ride in and save the day. It was <laughs> good. For some reason, in my, I'm looking at my notes, I kept looking at the lettering mm -hmm. at the, you know, of the time. I did not like the lettering on the story. There's something weird about it, the f like the hand lettering, I guess it was. And they also went to great lengths to try to make them talk Southern in the lettering. So mm -hmm. the contractions that they use and kind of the word shortening made it really, sometimes you had to go back and read the balloon like two or three times <laughs> to figure out what's going on. Yeah. But also too, the, the, this was a, again, a, kind of the, the fault of, of coloring at the time. Sometimes it's hard to tell the characters apart. So they put like specific visual clues in each, be it the hat, be it the scarf, be it the sheriff's badge, because you can never trust the coloring to be able to tell the characters apart. You really had to look for that visual cue to figure out who's who. Mm. And they all had such normal names too, yeah. like Gus and Wes and <laughs> Stan. <laughs> Our fifth story is Jungle Terror. It's an adventure story by Tom Dixon. And I literally, I wrote, it's fine. Nothing to write home about. Yeah, I was wondering too, because that's one that kind of comes out of the, the, the blue because it's not listed on the cover, is it? No, yeah. it's one that's just kind of included in there. It's you just know? like a random adventure story with no characters who show up again. It's not serialized. It's, I guess, again, it goes back to Goodman going to this group and saying, hey, I want a comic. It has to be this many pages. Take care of it. Yeah. And so you have someone, Tom Dixon, go in and do his part of it. Yeah, the other thing that I thought was interesting about this story, too, is it Sealed Home kind of, you know, this is a, a post-depression comic. And, you know, people were still getting back on their feet. And it, a lot of these stories are centered around the accumulation of wealth, be it Professor Horton and the bad guy in the first story mm -hmm. to Uncle John in this story who came away with the diamond. And even in Kazar, there was the, you know, the evil land baron who was looking for to, to mine for jewels. So it was a common theme, you know, of, you know, jewels and things that are important. It was about, you know, building themselves back up and kind of, you know, making sure that money was something that was so important. Yeah. Look at you. I didn't even think about all that stuff. There's a prose piece in here. It's by Raymond Gill. A couple of illustrations by Sam Gilman. And it is about a guy racing his car and the people who love him. At this point, they just had some pages to fill. They threw in a two-page prose story. Race uh, car drivers are cool, I guess, back then. In, I suppose. Yeah. Wasn't Thor in a, a race car movie? Yeah, he was. Yeah. yeah, there you go. It all comes together. Finally, we have the the Kazar story by Ben Thompson. Ben would do some other work for us during the timely years, but 
nothing to really talk about right now, but this is Kazar, but not the same Kazar that we know from modern comics. Modern comics, exactly. And this is actually, Kazar appeared prior to this too. He was in the pulps that Martin Goodman had published back in the day. So when he's putting this together, he said, oh, let's just take that character and draw him and create a story in Marvel Comics number one. I honestly had no idea. I thought that our regular Kazar was the same Kazar until I read this, did some research, and how this Kazar didn't have Zabu. He had Zar. Uh, yeah, he had Zar, <laughs> who's a different giant cat. Instead of a saber-toothed tiger, he has a lion. And he's friends with, like, the different animals in the area. And this actually gets serialized for a while. Yep. Kazar stories and the adaptations of those pulp stories become, you know, part of Marvel Comics, which becomes Marvel Mystery Comics, and on and on. It's sweet, if not full of problematic stuff for us with our modern eyes and, and sensibilities. Yes. As some of these, many of these stories actually had things that would be questionable this day and age. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this was also a cross between like Tarzan meets Dr. Doolittle. Yeah. He liked to talk to the animals. Yeah. And it was quite an entertaining origin that we, one that we don't necessarily hold up to this day, but was interesting back in the day. Like the name stuck. And then interesting, the name had an actual origin here because Zar was the lion and Kazar meant son of the lion, yeah. which when he was adopted after he saved him was very interesting. So it's fascinating stuff. 1939. This is Marvel Comics number one. After this, as I mentioned, the series becomes Marvel Mystery Comics. And by the end of the 40s, it turns into Marvel Tales. But this issue started it all. Yeah. Uh, How would you feel about reading it now? I thought it was great. I mean, it's a piece of Marvel history that I wish more people were familiar with. I mean, I was had a great time familiarizing myself with it again. And, you know, for, for folks that didn't know, this is where Marvel Comics, we as our company, got our name. Because back then, it was Marvel Comics published by Timely Comics. And eventually, when we were changing the name of the company, this is where we drew the inspiration from. Yeah. Uh, so we did get in some tweets from you guys. Uh, first up is Jiggy Cruz, CB's pal. And uh, he says, right off the bat, the Human Torch story was just made of 100% Marvel. So cool to read the very foundation of the House of Ideas on Marvel Unlimited. Question for us, CB. Jiggy asks, what story did you enjoy most from Marvel Comics number one? For me, and I think maybe you'd mention it was your favorite earlier, I love the Namor story. You know, it's just it's just a timeless tale, and the way that Bill Everett drew and wrote it was just something that I think you know, lives up to what we know as comics today. Yeah, I you could publish this today, and it would still... Sure, it would be. It would not look the same yeah. to everything else in our line, but it's still rock solid. Yep. It's real good. Uh, Scott McElroy says, "In light of Marvel's 80th anniversary, I figure it's high time to finally read this. In my 40 straight years of reading comics, the only Golden Age comics I've ever read were Carl Barks Disney Duck stories. So good. You ever read uh, old Scrooge McDuck? Yeah, I grew up on a lot of the uh, the old uh, Carl Barks and the." the all the, the Disney stories. So good. Scott says, I have a feeling this is going to be a bit different and more violent. Yeah, I mean, some of those duck stories, they get a little intense. Yeah. Uh, but yes. Uh, so Scott says, Namor crushing a dude's skull within his diving helmet. Dang. Post-Depression era comics were violent. And the Avenging Son doesn't even own a Punisher skull <laughs> t-shirt. Yeah. But there's so much of the terminology from that Namor story that we still use today. The Avenging Son. He's yeah. still the Avenging Son. You yeah. Know? I was reading another story, and it was just like, it's in my name. It's what my name means. Yeah. Get out of here. I did like, though, that I noticed that when his mother referred to them as a race, he didn't. she didn't call them Atlanteans. She called them the Submariners. Yeah. So it was yeah, the race yeah. of people that was the Submariners, not just the name of Namor. Yeah. Another one here from Scott. He says, question. Did the Masked Raider make any appearances after the Golden Age, like in Kid Cult, Rawhide Kid, or Two-Gun Comics? Did he know any of these Silver Age cowboys? 
I don't know. You've been reading a little more of the 40 stuff than yeah, I have of late. I don't I don't think Masked Raider made it out of the Golden Age and not into like the Atlas era or any of the Silver Age stuff. I don't know why. For yeah. whatever reason, um, I think, you know, Rawhide and, and Two Gun Kid, Kid Cult, those clicked. Yeah, they had afterwards. bigger yeah. personalities. Mm-hmm. They had more specific like missions, I think. Yeah. And that's why people connected with them. Yeah. Well, this one was maybe a little more generic, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. totally. But for 1939, it was yeah. did the job. Mm-hmm. And then a couple here from Karis Pollard. She says, okay, first impressions. It's so tiny. I started reading on my phone and needed a magnifying glass. I know it's a technology thing, but so much is spelled out in the text that would be left to the art in modern comics. Yeah. Again, they were finding their feet in how to do this medium. You know, comics was something that was new. You know, a lot of times you had illustrated stories in the past, but this was one where they were learning as they went. And, you know, they were relying on text more than they were on art to help tell that story. Because I think that's what people wanted back then, too. You know, they bought it for the story, which meant lettering. Yeah, I don't think at all do we see like a full page splash. Nothing that really you think of as a big, bombastic comic book you know, element. I think Namor is the only story that has less than like eight panels on a page, to be <laughs> honest with you. <laughs> oh, man. Karis continues saying, also, it's quite violent. The human torch melts a car on someone. The angel is basically the punisher. Namor smooshes someone's head. Someone add up the body count. Yeah, if we added up the body count in here, especially considering, you know, like, oh, comics were for children. Yeah. It was just intense. And, you know, people say, you know, <laughs> Marvel, we kill too many people, always bringing them back, though. But back then, Marvel had no qualms about it. Or timely, I should say, had no qualms about that. Yeah. Uh, CB, thank you for being on this one, and thanks for- No, this uh, is great, and it's, we're going to have a lot of fun doing these. I think so. Um, for anybody who is, is joining along, if you got suggestions, books you want to hear us talk about, yep. up next, we're going to do the 40s and the 50s, probably a mix. Part of why we're going to do the 40s and the 50s is we don't have a ton of 40s-era books on Marvel Unlimited, and yep. so this is all based on books we can pull from Marvel Unlimited, so it's easy for all you listeners to follow along. And these were mostly genre titles that we're going to be going into for the 40s and the 50s, too. You know, everything from horror to war to sci-fi, all that great stuff, before we got really into the superhero age. Yeah, and uh, part of what CB and his team are doing is making uh, some really cool comics right now. Uh, we talked about Namor, this issue, well, we had Marvel Comics Presents, number one, which had a fantastic Namor story that's set in the 40s. Yeah. Uh, Heartbreaker. All right, on that note, that's the end of this Twim URC. I'm Ryan. And I'm CB. And this is Marvel, your universe.